Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This is a special edition of the Artelligence Podcast, focused on Art Basel in Miami Beach. It's brought to you by Christie's Education New York, where art history meets the art market. When most people think of Art Basel in Miami Beach, they think of art dealers making sales, or they think of the parties. But most of the 30,000 visitors who arrive in Miami are not here to buy art, though many of them may be in art-related businesses. In this episode, we talk to seven who attended the fair to learn more about why they came to Miami. These are art world professionals, ranging from lawyers to museum directors to appraisers and magazine publishers, art finance experts, and promoters of emerging artists. If you hang on until the end, we talk to the inimitable Kenny Schachter, whose interest in art and the art market is one part obsession and two parts passion. We began by asking what was the first thing they did when they arrived in Miami. My itinerary is set well before I, I get down here, and it usually starts with, uh, um, uh, starts with a client meeting and then making our way to the fairs at some point. Well, the very first thing I do on a frivolous note is to go to Joe's Stone Crab and get my crab, my stone crab fix for the, for the season. And then the next thing is basically decide what are the most comfortable shoes I'm going to be wearing during this marathon for the next three or four days. Uh, first thing I do, uh, first thing I did when I arrived is I went straight to a conference to, uh, on Monday, the uh, Ivy Fawn, a family office conference. Probably for me, it's to, to go get some seafood. That's kind of a that's kind of a little bit puts me in the, in the right state of mind, and then run to see the installation and progress of whatever project I'm working on. The first thing I did was actually go to a cocktail reception uh, with collectors, with artists, and with some very good friends. Make sure that the magazines are well distributed. Oh yeah, I get I get ready for dinner, man. I get I get my I'm get ready to get my drink on and and have some fun with interesting people and you know indulge a little bit in a fine meal. Before we get to the eating and drinking, let's begin our conversations with Marie Claudia Jimenez, the head of Trust and Estates for Sotheby's. She came down on Sunday night for a conference that began on Monday morning. I spoke at a conference on Monday. And then um, that basically took up all of my Monday. So I had to be here in preparation. And I feel like every year it gets earlier and earlier and earlier to the point where it's now impacting my Thanksgiving. I don't actually cook Thanksgiving anymore and go to a restaurant because I just feel like I don't have time between the time I finish Thanksgiving festivities and I have to leave for Basel. Why the hurry? What motivates people to schedule things so early in the week? You know, I think that every year it sort of escalated to get more and more intense and more parties and more events. And it used to be that the first day of the fair for the average folk was Thursday. And, you know, that was the vernissage. It was, you know, I think Thursday night. And that was sort of when things began. And now it's, you know, Wednesday and it's all day preview. And that's when people expect to go. And it's sort of really just become, you know, Tuesday's become the big night now when it used to be that Wednesday was the big night. And I mean, I feel like next year, Monday will be a big night. There have been times when I've come here and actually left before the fair which is frightening but you see it happen all the time because you're really here for all the events surrounding the fair and seeing the fair is sort of an afterthought. If the conference and the fair are secondary to Jimenez what's the main attraction? 
month. So there's definitely a lot of meetings being had. I think there's interesting thing is oftentimes they're from people they're with people from who are from New York, which is the most curious aspect of this because I could easily be doing this in New York, but there's something about being in Miami at the same time and sharing this experience that makes people more amenable to wanting to meet and, and being more excited about the prospect. So I obviously embrace that opportunity. And then of course, you know, the conferences that I you know, this conference um, that I spoke to you on spoke at on Monday, sometimes I've spoken at other conferences that are, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday um, that are more affiliated either with banks or with different entities or vendors, so to speak, that are kind of trying to focus on their clientele. So I've, I've done that. And then often there are a lot of clients here in this area who are either in town from Latin America or who are from Miami that I take the opportunity to see as well. This year, attendance at the fair's VIP preview was off by nearly 10%. In many ways, that's been a blessing for people like Jimenez because it's meant some of the frenzy of social events has toned down. Like in the years past, I had to go to events that I felt like, really, I didn't understand why the person throwing the event was throwing it or even why I was there. Don't worry, there were still a lot of parties in Miami, and several were must-attend events. You know, I, I feel like every year there's sort of always the big it party, which I try to avoid because at the end of the day, nothing truly gets accomplished at those kinds of things. Um, but I feel like there, you know, there are sort of standbys every year. I always go to the U.S. Trust Party at the Rubel, which I find is actually a very interesting opportunity to see a big cross section of the art world um, from both clients to, you know, the more of the vendor types. And other than that, I mean, I think that sort of the most interesting times here, are, you know, having breakfast in the lobby at your hotel where you see all sorts of different people and you kind of have these sort of chance run-ins with people that maybe they're from your same city, but you don't have the opportunity to sit next to and say, oh, hey, by the way, so good to see you. And as I said, somehow people are friendlier down here. The global art calendar has gotten very crowded, but for many art professionals, Miami remains distinctive. When I was an, an, an working as an art lawyer, there was there were a number of conferences that you know sort of everybody went to that was important to go to just because you got updates on what was going on and that was sort of part of the the the, the scene. For here, I mean, I think that all the art fairs are really pretty much sort of the the focus. But there is something about Miami that is you know I think it's the frivolous nature of it that makes it sort of more of the go-to. You know, when you don't think of people going to Freeze or Maastricht or even Basel and Basel and have the same kind of you know connection to it. Because of that connection, there's also a bit of a status element to attending Art Basel in Miami Beach. You know, we, I, I, my, my background is I was a lawyer for 12 years at Herrick Feinstein, and I always came every year at part of, as part of the firm, and that was a very important part of our networking and marketing, and it now continues at Sotheby's. And, you know, part of it is obviously that if you're here every year, you are obviously engaged in this market, and that's, that's something that's, that makes you relevant, so that's a big part of it. But I think that it's also more important for people who are very junior and just starting out because it sort of validates them in a way. You know, I know in New York, if you're talking to somebody about early December, and they say to you, well, I'm going to be in Basel. It, I mean, it's absurd, but it almost makes you be like, oh, they're going. Okay. You know, like you must be someone or you must be important. And it's a, it's a, it's an absurd statement about how we all think, but it, it means something. It kind of puts you on the map. Some art market professionals attend Art Basel in Miami Beach to do business. Laurel Moisi, the publisher of White Wall Magazine, is there because producing content for the fair is his business. I arrived on Friday night and uh, had the entire weekend to plan distribution of the magazine. This year we printed 60,000 copies and distributed in above 80 different locations. So it was a bit of a logistical nightmare, especially uh, given the holiday weekend. After the magazine is distributed, 
the work really begins for Laurent and his team. They produce a series of panels sponsored by Lexus. No, after Monday, it's actually when the craziness starts. It's when, if my calculation are right, last year there were 400 events over the four days of the week. And this year, from my calculation and from my personal agenda, going to 12 different events each day, uh, I would say that there's significant amounts of things to be seen, things to be done, and people to be met. Whitewall used to host a party at Art Basel, but Moisi feels that panels and content have replaced parties. Last year was the first time we did a panel and a discussion in Miami. Uh, we had a really interesting, fun talk about the role of Instagram in the art world, and we had Simon de Puri, Swiss Beats, and Daniel Arsham talking about how they use this social media uh, to either showcase, discover, or advertise themselves. So it's a very, it was a really interesting discussion, and we realized that as a media, what we were mostly interested in was creating content, and we've been historically known for organizing parties in Miami as White Wall, and we organized that shift uh, this year where we heavily focused on creating content more than parties. And so this, it requires much more work because we need to make sure that we have uh, the right speakers. So first of all, we dis- decide with the editorial team uh, the topic that we want to be talking about, and then we, uh, we move along and then identify the speakers that we want. And then obviously there's, uh, like everything, devil is in the detail, uh, the cancellation, the logistics, uh, having the people showing on time, being, agreeing to speak to one another. So it's, it has to, you have to be very flexible. Even after moving from parties to panels, Moisi's team hasn't given up on having a good time. Of course, there's so many parties that you're competing and there is like so much noise. But it's also, I think that we, as a publication, as, as human being matured, and we're more interested in experiences and on um, stories than on partying. So the party is an amazing thing and we will keep doing parties. We did a lounge for the White Waller on Sunday night uh, in Brico at the East Hotel, and it was really fun. We had live band. It was really interesting to do. But what comes out of it? It's just another party. Whereas conferences and talks, it's something that will last. We will always remember, and we will always have the footage, and we will say, oh, yes, in 2016, on December 1st, uh, Anquilis Thomas said that. And it's... will. And in a way, it's our part as a media to actually try to elevate a bit the debate and be part of uh, what is badly needed in our society, which is uh, a bit more culture and not just bling. Finally, Muisi has a novel theory about Art Basel and Miami Beach that explains why any party can't really compete. It's, I, I think, yes, it's actually the corporate Christmas party of the art world. Uh, where everyone has to behave, but sometimes you have people that drink too much and don't, and uh, it becomes like a office life, and and you see on the faces of the people when the year was good, people are happy. So I think it's exactly what it is. Now let's shift gears to an actual party and talk to Elena Sabaleva, 
of Artsy. Um, so I work with Artsy on bringing some of the things that we do into the offline realm and really con connecting with our collector base and the people who sort of engage with Artsy and um, also helping build and promote the brand in a way that's relatable. So what I work on predominantly is um, one big event, the, you know, sometimes called the Artsy Party, but we have much more of an artistic element to it. So this year's Artsy event is called Collective Reality. And the whole idea behind it is we're bringing VR artwork beyond the headset. So we worked with three virtual reality artists um, who are known in their field. Um, you know, John Raffman, who was in this summer's Berlin Biennale and Manifesta. Uh, Rachel Rawson, who um, was the first VR resident at the New Museum. And Jacoby Satterwhite, who was in the Whitney Biennale um, a couple years ago. And all of them really represent sort of uh, artists who are pushing the boundary of digital art and working within the sort of headset environment but what we were able to create is a experience that where virtual reality can be experienced publicly and so for us this is very much on brand with Artsy because it's bringing art and technology and really sort of innovating and showing people um, in a very collective way the sort of power of art. For us, it's really the goal is to connect and really, you know, be in, enable artists to do something that they wouldn't be able to do in a art fair booth or even, you know, a gallery because of the scope of the project and the fact that it's not really commercial. When you do something that ambitious, bringing it to a giant beachside dome with 360 projections and live VR performances, um, it, it's something that that is quite difficult to execute and takes a lot of time, but you know, might not necessarily. Be seen in a gallery and so that's where we really feel like we can uh, we, we, we can kind of promote what we believe in as a company um, and be on brand for us but as well really sort of create a special moment and a special activation. How long does it take to put something like this together? Well according to Elena you can never start too early. Um, I, I, th I think that we uh, the one lesson with Miami is start planning as soon as you can um, and so um, you know, planning even from the summer feels too late because it, you know, uh, so ideally January we'll, we'll start conceptualizing and thinking about the, uh, the presence we want to have and especially if it's something where it's bigger or multi-day that really, um, you really need to start thinking about it early so that you can sort of start um, giving artists also the fair time, the lead time to create pieces, to create commissioned artwork if that's what, you know, uh, you're working on because it, that definitely takes a lot of time. Well, we've been working with the main artist who did the live performance, Rachel Rawson, since the summer uh, in sort of conceptualizing the piece. And uh, we were lucky to connect with Faina, um, who uh, has uh, was planning to build a dome. And so we really connected the idea of virtual reality being something where you can see in 360 with the idea that they're building a dome. And um, that really was sort of the seed of the seed of the idea that came together later um, and um, and you know so we worked from probably from August onwards um, we had SoundCloud come in you know as a partner to bring the musical components so that was really you know great to also work that we can create another sort of layer to that so it was art and technology and music all sort of coming together in something that was you know bigger than the sum of the parts with this installation because it was all digital files it was you know a little bit that I didn't have to be on the ground as early last year I did something where I had physical and I, physical artwork where I worked with Dan Colin and Eddie Peake and Catherine Bernhardt to create a 
painted pool. And there I had to be weeks in advance in Miami actually physically making sure things were getting installed in place. Um, but this, I, f I figured it might be easier because it's, you know, just digital files. But then you realize that there's uh, actually, when you don't see it in front of you, you're kind of worried that something's going to glitch and not go right. But thankfully the artists we're working with are pretty incredible experts in all of that and made sure that everything was flawless. This podcast is sponsored by Christie's Education New York. Christie's Education offers master's degrees and continuing education programs on all aspects of art history, art business, and the art market. Programs emphasize the importance of direct contact with original works of art and interaction with a network of artists and professionals to enhance students' exploration of the art world. Contact New York at Christie's.edu to schedule a meeting with an admissions counselor or faculty member, or to tour the facilities. For details on their master's degree programs and for gainful employment information, visit Christie's.edu. Let's move on to the art fair. Art fairs are a place where buyers and sellers meet to make transactions, and where there are transactions, Lawyers are never far behind. Jug Grossman runs a commercial litigation firm with expertise in the art market. I asked him what he does at Art Basel. As you know, deals are, are happening not only at the fair, but uh, at, at any of the many events that are taking place throughout the city. The clients who are here to buy, they know in advance what they're looking for, and, and they try and get that accomplished, in the, as I said, in the first several hours, if not the first day. Um, but eager buyers, or sellers for that matter, aren't always well-prepared buyers and sellers. So in an ideal world, um, everything will be taken care of before everyone gets down here, both on the collector and the gallery side. Uh, you'd love to have all the consi written consignment agreements squared away. You'd love to have the collectors uh, come prepared, whether it's with a checklist we'll prepare for them uh, concerning the right questions to ask or terms to uh, include in, in any deal, um, but the reality is, uh, in the art world especially, not all of that happens beforehand, so things will come up and they do come up while we're down here. Uh, I think it was about four years ago we had a, a gallery client who did a pop-up show at the Delano in a bungalow, uh, and I'll never forget walking to the, the bungalow in a, in a jacket and tie to get a, a last-minute amendment to a consignment agreement executed, so you, you never know what's going to happen. Um, the reality is this fair and all fairs, things move kind of quickly as well. So you'd love for your, your collector clients to come prepared, but last minute questions always arise. I'm, I'm here if people need me, and I think it's, it's comforting uh, to navigate the art world generally, but especially in an art fair setting when everything does move so quickly, to have an advisor close by if something goes wrong. That doesn't mean Grossman's just sitting by the pool waiting for a client to call. I, I feel like... Uh, if, if you're only here for a short while, which I am, you have your, your days pretty much mapped out. And that means making sure you're at the, the openings uh, of the fairs when, when each of the fairs uh, uh, opens its doors, but also you're seeing the people you've come to see. After so many years coming to Art Basel, how does Grossman think the fair has changed? It just seems to have gotten bigger. Uh, the main fairs is as great as ever. Uh, and all of the satellite fairs, to their credit, are, are doing very good things. It's just very difficult uh, to, to cram all of that into the short period of time that most of us are down here for. Uh, so I think you see the crowds 
which is a good thing. It's a good sign. But the crowds are becoming large. Um, I don't know that the infrastructure of the city can handle it, especially when you have events over in Wynwood, people going back and forth. The traffic's unbearable. Um, but people are willing to put up with that because this is our puzzle. One of the things that people who go to Art Basel regularly have in common is a tendency to complain about going to Art Basel. Naomi Begel, who works in marketing at Athena Art Finance, explains the love-hate relationship. You know, it's a funny thing. I've been coming to Art Basel since its inception, and almost every year I pretend that I'm not going to come back. But the reality is, it's the one time, unlike any other art fair, where everybody in your community is here at the same time and really just focused on interacting with each other as opposed to doing their other life's work. And you can see them in a way that you typically can't normally. Even when you go to the other art fairs, because they're in bigger cities, they're really here to enjoy and you can have conversations with them and catch up with them in ways that you normally can't on a personal level and in a professional level. So it's always been an incredibly fruitful gathering during the week of Art Basel in Miami. But with everything going on that week in Miami, does Begel have one must-see event? I would say just the main fair. I mean, I go to all the other ancillary fairs because I think it's interesting to see some of the younger artists and some of the installation work that you can't really house here in the fair. But from a pure professional standpoint, everybody's here at the fair, at least on the first day. And then I come back at the end to make sure that after my eyes have had a chance to rest that I can see some of the artwork, actually enjoy it. So how would Big L sum up the importance of attending Art Basel? I think it's multifaceted. I think initially and predominantly it's just to really be engaged with the community and, and educate and talk about what it is you're doing. A lot of the bigger business happens after the fact, but it's a way to re-engage with your clients, even hear what they have to say after they've digested a little bit about what you've done over the course of the last year or two, and they've come back with questions. And while they don't call you necessarily, when they see you here, they say, oh, I've been meaning to talk to you. I had an idea. I had a client. I know somebody that's good for you. One of the most important constituencies at Art Basel in Miami Beach are museum boards and their patrons. These buyers are prized by galleries for the simple reason that the work they buy is more likely to end up in an institution. With that in mind, I spoke to Jonathan Binstock, the director of the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester, New York, who is attending the fair with some members of his board. These are long-term patrons of the museum who are just beginning their career, as it were, as art collectors. So they're very civically minded, they've always loved art, and now they feel like they're ready to begin participating in a new way. So I am working with them, um, traveling with them, touring with them, looking with them, um, and we're discovering ideas and opportunities for their personal collection. One of the thing that I think inspire, one of the ideas that inspires them is knowing that if and when they ever want to part with the work of art that they've acquired, maybe they move, maybe they get tired of it, who knows, that there's a home for the work of art in the museum in their town. You know, I was set to tour with about three or four couples and uh, maybe you know how it goes, people's plans change all the time. So it was in the end only one couple that joined me this year, which was a lot of fun being able to focus. But the wife w was ready to 
transact, ready to, to buy something. She had been to Art Basel before. She's been looking online. She's been researching. And she really understands where she um, kind of falls in terms of her taste. And she's ready to go. It was her husband's first time to the fair. I thought he was going to be overwhelmed. But, you know, this is a very clever guy, very sharp. And he made total sense of it within about 10 minutes, which is which I found kind of amazing. So, you know, it really varies, right, how people respond. But we just meandered through the fair, actually. We didn't check off on our map gallery after gallery. We didn't have a plan. Um, we, we just moseyed along and enjoyed ourselves. They enjoyed themselves so much, the board members found two different works of art they were thinking of buying. But Binstock cautioned them to take their time. They, they, this is the jumping off point. They are definitely going to follow up with galleries in New York, galleries in London, galleries in Berlin, I think are the ones that we, we spent the most time with. And either it will happen through email with Berlin or London in the near term. They'll get there at some point. But in New York, they'll shoot down to New York City and they'll make appointments and they'll really um, they'll, they'll, they'll visit the galleries. I think it'll take a little time. I think, I think what I really want for them is to develop some of their own relationships with these dealers and to feel comfortable with the conversation and to return to the gallery, I think is very important to go to the gallery. I mean, this is no place to look at art. It, it's, you know. I asked Binstock how buyers in a city like Rochester differ from buyers in a city like New York. If you're talking about um, folks who are kind of wading into the collecting waters in a serious way for the first time, it's a very different, the value proposition is very different than what it is for a collector who is working a lot with an art advisor and going to all the fairs. Um, for my friends in Rochester, when they think of value, they're, they're really just thinking of, is, is, this, is this valuable for our community? You know, and okay, I don't want to spend too much and, and I don't want to have the wool pulled over my eyes. But beyond that, they're thinking about, so what if I give it to my daughter? Is it going to mean anything to anybody else besides me? And and it's it's not so much about the investment value in this particular case as it is about getting something that matters, that they love and that also matters. And they, they may end up buying something that is quirky or idiosyncratic or quote-unquote a collector's piece, uh, which would be hard to resell, but... I'm here to say it's a fantastic thing, and if ever you get tired of it, Memorial Art Gallery would love to have it. With that kind of support, Binstock plans many trips to New York with his board. He's also planning on going farther afield. Um, we'll be going to Art Basel in Switzerland. Um, uh, I'm definitely planning a big trip in summer 2018. Um, I'm going to try to get to Venice Biennale, which is not an art fair, this summer with my patrons and, and board members. For Binstock, the goal is not only to support his patrons, but he wants to steer them towards the exploding world of contemporary art. It's been exciting working in Rochester, New York. This is a beautiful museum, you know, 5,000 years of world art, 12,000 objects, many beautiful, outstanding examples, some world-class. Uh, and, and they haven't really thought much about contemporary art because it was always a historical uh, outlook. But with my arrival and my interest in post-war art, there's all these people who who are finding it interesting and are willing to kind of grow in new, new ways. And um, I think that's the story in Rochester. And <laughs>
While newcomers are learning their way around the art world, experts like Kimball Higgs, an appraiser and art advisor at Winston Art Group, are taking detailed notes and doing their homework. I like to spend uh, time looking at, at the art and asking prices and, and you know, renewing contacts with dealers and making new contacts with dealers and, and collectors and um, try to um, uh, do post-fair uh, post um, uh, analysis of, of what things sell for and, and if I can get the information on who's buying that's useful too but, but you always can't get that but you know I try to accumulate as much information uh, because you never know what you're going to see when you go to someone's house or you go to a, a institutional collection or uh, you go to a, a, you know a corporate collection so I mean you know as, as much information as you can command and as much information as you can um, uh, you know, get from people. Um, it's always, you know, there, you can't have too much information in this in this world. And the the art fair, sorry, is is an example of too much information. I mean, there's way too much information out here. But but you really have to, you know, if it's your business to look, you have to look. I mean, I think that you want to keep the signal to noise ratio uh, on the signal side, obviously. Um, but uh, you know because of the sheer number of items and the number of art fairs um, and the, the art to experience, I mean, there, there, there always will be noise and you have to sort of figure out the signal for yourself and for your clients and, and, and what works. Um, I mean, a kind of visual memory is important so you can, you can say, oh, I saw that picture or there was five of them at uh, Art Basel Miami um, and um, or I saw a show in the Bass Museum or um, I uh, went to the Rubel collection and and learned you know three new artists I bought the catalog and you know stuff like that it's you know there's so much to see and do here that that um, uh, you know the, the the more you can do the better off you'll be the endless socializing the around-the-clock parties and events it's all a way for people to gather information, because information is what makes art valuable. Um, you know, the great thing about an art fair in general and about the Basel series of Basel fairs, the major galleries that are represented, is that the dealers are very approachable. They, they may be tired or a, a little grumpy or something like that, but in general they are, they are open um, to speaking about the art. Um, often enthusiastic about the art in ways in which um, you can't quite understand by looking at the art. Because in the contemporary art world there's, there's, much, more, there's much more behind the painting than on the surface, or behind a sculpture uh, than on the surface. There are people who take the fair seriously. And then there's Kenny Schachter. The sometime collector, sometime dealer, sometime art advisor, and full-time writer, Kachter is the only person writing about the art market who actually buys, sells, and collects art. I just think the Basels do it better than the Basels as a company, as a concept, as a fair. It's a charged event. It's full of amazing material. I mean, it's like going to the Metropolitan Museum with price, ta price tags on it. So, I mean, I just think 
in terms of the fair industry, and there's so many a plethora of fares, more than ever today than ever before in history, as a matter of fact. But the company just gets it right. The quality is there, the vetting, the everyone, you could see such consideration and effort is put into the cur curatorial project, into the fair process. It's so professionally run, and it's just, it's an astounding event. I don't see, many people are dismissive of fairs and saying that it takes detracts from galleries or it's a kind of uh, necessary evil of the business of art, but I find it an extraordinary opportunity to kick the tires and see so such an abundance of material up close and, 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 and at one time and one location, and it's wonderful. Like you said before, that I'm often writing about the pack of people following the fairs and the auctions around, and really I collect collectors as much as I collect paintings. So, I mean, so much of what you experience and how you read the fair is according to the interaction. If you go to a gal any given famous gallery, I won't, and I won't, like, if you go to any gallery and you try to find, like, Barbara Gladstone or, you know, it's impossible. You can't find them. And if you do, if they are in the building, they're covered up by 19 velvet ropes, a barricade, which is, is insurpassable. So affairs are really the only occasion in the art world where you have all of the principles, at least for the first 24 or 48 hours on the premises, accessible. And what I love is to like to, to ask prices for everything. And really, in my articles and in my note taking today, I just shamelessly ask every single price until I, I have physically no further strength to walk another aisle and, and bother another person. And then I'll come back and do it again. And really because, you know, it's the law in New York State that you're supposed to either post the prices on the wall or have them on the front desk visible to the naked eye for, for, for patrons that come in, but nobody abides by that rule whatsoever. And really an art fair is that it's, it's, it's this kind of like interface it's a person-to-person -person interface in a level that is absolutely unattainable if you enter any commercial gallery, pretty much all of them, if it, especially the success, bigger ones. For Schachter, the visibility and transparency of a great art fair is essential to understanding how art actually gets sold. It's fun to eavesdrop on, and then like, I mean, you see people actually pulling the trigger, doing the deed. It's very exhibitionist in that sense because people, and people don't seem to be too shy about it, you know, so you can track people. There's just so much to be gleaned on so many different levels. There's so much to be absorbed from the interaction of seeing artists on the scene and seeing the layout of the booths. And now there was a new section of cabinet section where there are curated sections and focuses on one person shows. There's just such an extraordinary amount of information kicked off from a fair, from the personal level, from seeing people and from seeing the interactions and the transactions and just the whole thing. To see who's come from Europe this time and you know which familiar faces there, who has not come to the party and yeah. Schachter doesn't just go to the fair once, or even twice. He goes back obsessively, again and again. Having spent four and a half hours, which is pretty much the threshold when I can't really absorb any further information meaningfully, I've seen maybe 65% of the fair. It's outrageous, and I, it's not even the biggest. So really, it behooves me to get back and look closer. And also, if I go back tomorrow or Friday, by Friday, it's going to be a 60% different event altogether. Much of what motivates Schachter is a deep love of art, but it takes more than love to understand what actually makes art sell. I'm, you know, cause in a way, like, on a certain level, there's a, sep a big separation between the passion and connoisseurship of loving art and the art market itself. 
But I, what sells, really the only art that could be sold well is art that's selling well. You sell into momentum in the art market. So for instance, Mark Rochon is, there's a wild fervor around his market. I don't think there were any paintings, not even a single painting in the fair, but there were maybe six or eight works on paper, at least. I mean, I think there were two or three alone in Gagosian and Mnuchin had one and um, Richard Gray had one. There were many. So. Yeah, there are certain, I mean, as far as, I mean, my business is selling obvious things to obvious people. I collect for myself, and, and in that regard, I collect a lot of conceptual work and work from 60s, 70s, and various things. So in terms of, if I'm, if I'm going to a fair and trying to find stuff for a given person or a client, or of course, you're geared towards certain things and appeasing certain interests of people, but mainly for the, the really, it's one of the main reasons I come is simply to take the temperature of the market. Here's what Schachter learned. I think in that in that regard, there's also, I mean, the artists, the art world loves to discover the discovered. So where they could find, where there's already a market being made, there's institutional support, there's critical support, but the market goes up, the market goes down, and then you have these people circling around, and if there's a big body of work that's widely known but underappreciated at a given time, all of a sudden people will turn around and seize on that moment and try to make something of it commercially. And Schachter offers a few examples. There's been a big movement in condo recently, which I observed in New York last week with the auctions. And now he's sort of settling in in the range of around a million dollars, give or take, for a big painting. And that's a new kind of benchmark for him. And as you, as a result of that, because that was quite a kind of gelling publicly, there were tons of condos in the fair. Tons, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of Stengels, for instance. There's a big upcoming unannounced show at the Beiler Museum. And as a result, there weren't great quality works. I mean, people are criticizing the artist on occasion, saying that he overproduces. I see absolutely no sign of that whatsoever. And you can't find any of his great, most classic signature works. None of them are for sale, basically. So I mean, yeah, there are different trends and different things that pop up in one cycle or another. And there are certain patterns that you see taking shape. Even after an exhausting week, Kenny Schachter remains unrepentantly enamored with the global caravan of art fairs and art events. Really, it's just, I mean, it's its just the constant, you know, whether you like it or not, whether it's a good one, whether it's a bad one, you're always going to see something. Something is going to grip you. Something is going to slightly impact on the way you see things now, before, tomorrow. And it's at these kind of, it's, it, it's these unforeseen things that crop up, whether it's personal relationships that unfold that you didn't expect to, seeing art in a certain context, forging a relationship on another level with someone, whether it's fortuitous, a lot of times these things just crop up. And that's why you always have to be on the road to be in the art business today. It's a nomadic profession and you can't afford to sit still. And of course, we finished by asking everyone what was the last thing they did before they left. Oftentimes, it's a return to the fair and a return to works of art that I have been considering, are on my mind, um, a last-minute uh, catch-up with galleries that I wanted to visit but didn't, and that's probably where I am this time around. Swimming the ocean. Um, basically figure out, you know, how I'm going to, you know, detox from the, you know, debauchery of four days of nonstop parties, conferences, events, and fairs, and lots and lots of art, good and bad. Uh, I might take a, a dip in the ocean or a pool or, or something to kind of cool off and and um, enjoy myself a little bit. Um, I'd say it's one final call to, to make sure everything's going smoothly. In, in, 
invariably something will come up after I've, I've left, but hopefully everything's under control by then. Make sure I have all my catalogs and all my contact information in, in one place. Oh my gosh! Um, try to get a try to get a last look of the ocean. I think for me, it's a successful. You know, I've had some personal time. If I actually get to see the get to see the ocean. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I just try to at the end, like anything, you just try to see more, see another show, go to another off-site private museum or collection, and just try to cram in as much as you can. This has been a special edition of the Artelligence Podcast, sponsored by. Christie's Education New York, where art history meets the art market. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 